How you guys doing tonight? It's been a journey, I'll tell you that. You're going to be in John 13 tonight. And join me as we pray. Lord, I, I have to admit I come to a section of Scripture tonight that I don't have nailed down in my own spiritual walk. And, and so I come humbly before you um, teaching this scripture to people that some of them may have this thing figured out better than I do. But what I, can, what I do know is that you're patient and you're long-suffering. And when it comes to the idea of truly serving people and, and serving you, that I would uh, be impacted by this message tonight just as much as the person sitting in the seat, if not even more. And Lord, I, I pray tonight we would have sound mind um, to go through your word and go through the scripture here, to be able to understand what Jesus was asking his disciples to do because that, he is asking us that as well 2,000 years later. And so, Father, I, I just pray that you just anoint this, this, uh, this sermon and that you would, with your Holy Spirit, work in and through me to be able to speak it with boldness and with conviction as well. And I just pray every person's heart here is open to the gospel, that there would be salvation tonight and there would be a transformation of the mind because of the scripture. And so just be with me as I speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to uh, touch on a, a scripture that's pretty popular um, to many who have been in the church for a while, and it's the, it's the scripture where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And this is really a radical sermon when you get down into it. And it's one of those sermons where you will work on it for the rest of your life. Um, you can't get to the bottom of it because how can we serve like Jesus serves in a night, in one service, in one message, you get it and you start serving exactly the way Jesus served. And because he is patient, because he is long-suffering with us, we do have that grace that's shed upon us to where we can still walk out, knowing that we have a lot of room to grow, but at the same time, he's going to, uh, he's going to bless you if you step out into that direction. For some of you, you have a lot of many examples in your life of somebody who truly is a foot-washing servant. And for others of you, you may have never experienced it before. Back in 2000, prior to coming to Christ, probably around May of 2000, I came to a squadron. I was in the Air Force, out at Shriver Air Force Base, and I came to a squadron um, where the, the commander was coming in at the same time. And the commander of a squadron, he's going to be over 150, 200 people around there approximately, um, at least in my squadron. And I remember his first commander's call. It was so radical compared to every other commander's call I've been to. And he's, he's really starting to, he's trying to set the precedent for what he is like and what he is about and his leadership model and what we are to expect of him. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Mike Tresonis. 
And I remember he was like, okay, guys, this is who I am. And he just kind of lays it out there, how he met his wife and how he has a family and just a really personable guy. But then he says, when you go out into the world, you see this leadership model, it's like a pyramid. And at the bottom of that pyramid, the base, that's where the workers are. Those are the servants. Those are the people really grinding and doing it. Then if you go one step up, you'll have the frontline supervisors. And you keep up, and the higher you go, the higher the supervision goes till you get to the top. And that's going to be your commander. That's going to be your president. That's going to be your CEO or whatever. And that person up there calls the shots, and everybody, and then it trickles down. And then in the base, they're the ones doing all the work, and they're the ones serving, and they're doing everything else. And the person at the top just kind of just slobs down the commands. He says, I'm not like that. And he shows another slide, and he has the, the triangle or the pyramid upside down, flipped upside down, where he's at the bottom as the commander leading us in this unit. And the people at the very top are the low-level people, the airmen and the sergeants doing all the work. And he says, this is the way the squadron is going to run. Your leadership will serve you. This is the kind of leadership that is going to be in this squadron. And he held all his officers to it. He held all his senior NCOs to it and the staff sergeants to it that the airmen were to be served and the staff sergeants were to be served and, the, and it just kind of worked that way. And he was at the bottom and his, his job, his, his view of leadership is, is he's there to serve, but at the same time, he has command. And I remember, this was before I was a believer, it was about five months before I accepted Christ, I was thinking, this is the most radical thing I've ever seen. And everybody else is like, wow, this is crazy. We've never heard anything like this before. And then he's just like, this is the leadership model of Jesus right here. And you're talking, you're in a squadron in the Air Force. You don't really hear the name Jesus mentioned in a commander's call, do you? Anybody who's been in that field before. And he's like, you can believe what you believe. This is how I believe, and this is how I lead. I'm going to lead the way Jesus leads. And I tell you what, when I went into that, that squadron, the morale was low. And as he took off and he was going, he was implementing this leadership strategy. You just see the morale change in the squadron. And he was just serving the people. And as he served the people, the people would work for him. And there was a synergy that was going on simply because he took the leadership model of Jesus to serve those under him, to wash their feet. And in turn, they went out and blessed him by working for him because they know he has your back whole time. That's a simple, basic leadership model of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of God leadership model. And that's how we as the church should operate as well. And what we're going to talk about tonight, you're going to see Jesus. He is, he is trying to teach this model. And we know that it, any of you, if you've ever been in an organization where this model is really uh, being set forth, you're like, man, this is a blessing to be in this model. But nobody likes to have that leader. It's just like, here, do this, and you do that, you do this, and you do that because I'm in the position. Yeah, people will do it, but they won't have the, the, the leaders back. And so tonight, we're going to examine this. John chapter 13. This is a starting point. This is a teaching point that um, from John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, they call this the upper room discourse. It's during Passover. John spends a large portion of the gospel of Christ just in the last week alone. We're in the last week just in chapter uh, 12 and 13. We're seeing the triumphal entry. That means that marks the last week of Jesus' life. And the John goes on till uh, John chapter 21. 
So almost half of the gospel is the last week of Jesus. And it's Passover time. This is a big deal to a Jew. Passover is huge. At this point, they had celebrated probably over 1,300, 1,300 Passover meals since it was instituted back in Exodus chapter 12, around 1275 BC. And we need to talk about that for just a second so we understand, so you can piece together what God is trying to communicate to us. This is the time back in 1275 BC, the Israelites had been in captivity for over 400 years. They were slaves to the Egyptians. And then Moses comes in, God tells him to go get his people and he's gonna give them a land that's flowing milk and honey. It's gonna be amazing. They're the weakest of people. Moses has a stuttering problem. So he's kind of a weak person too, to the, to the world's eyes. And God uses weak vessels all the time so he can get the glory. And so he, he goes and he, he, try, he goes to get the Israelites and the Pharaoh is not having it. He has plague after plague after plague after plague until he gets to the 10th plague. And it's a crazy plague. God says, if you do not put the blood of an innocent lamb on your doorpost and in your, the top lintel, on this one night, this one particular night, if I don't see blood on there, I'm going to pass over and cast judgment upon your house and the firstborn male of your household will die. However, if you put that on there, my judgment will pass over you. That's where we get pass over. And that was to mark now the very first day or the very first month of the Jewish calendar. That's the 14th day of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. 10 days or four days prior to that, the 10th day, they were to go get an innocent spotless lamb and bring it into the house and hang out with it for just a little while, for four days and get kind of a little cuddly with this innocent little lamb. Then on the Passover night, they were to slaughter it and take that blood of that innocent lamb and put that on the doorposts, okay? We know what happens. Death went all throughout the land of Egypt because people just did not heed the command of God to take the innocent lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and then the lentil, and then judgment passed all over. Even Pharaoh's son died. The scripture says there was wailing all throughout Egypt. And the Pharaoh's like, get out of here. And they took off and they went out. And for every year, the very first month in the Jewish calendar, on the 14th day, they are to have the Passover meal. That's where we're at in the scriptures. 1,300 years later, 1,300 and some times, they have had this Passover meal and the person in the house, the father or whatever, would, would say this is what God did for the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And it also had some future aspect to it. They really couldn't nail it down of exactly what it was. However, we know now that that spotless lamb was Jesus. So here comes in, in chapter 12, what Eric talked about last week, the triumphal entry. Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives. That's 10 days. Uh, it was the 10th of the month. That's when they were supposed to bring in the spotless lamb in the house back in Exodus 12. And here comes the spotless lamb coming into Jerusalem. And then for four days, they hung out with Jesus. And here we are at the Passover meal. And it all 
God is just all piecing in the Old Testament and the New Testament together so you can see how amazing the scripture is. I tell you this, not only for you to understand the passage and what was going on, but just so you can just be simply blown away by the scripture. How God can sit there and prophesize all this stuff and it comes to fruition. And on this day, this was like no other Passover. Here is the son of God, the lamb of God, the innocent lamb who's going to be slain. What a wonderful time to be alive. And in that upper room on this night with just the 12 disciples, the rest of the world was locked out. And he is going to give them a brilliant sermon on what he expects of them. It's his dying last words, his, his dying words, if you will, ton packed of wisdom and says, I'm going to tell you what you need to know before you head off and you go out after I die and you go out into the world and start the church. That's what we're getting into. Starting tonight, chapter 13, all the way through 17, it's Jesus's last words to his disciples before the, before the crucifixion comes. And so in 13, verse one, it says, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this is another just description that Jesus, he was full of emotion. He loved his people. He loved his disciples to the end, meaning he'll even go to the end to the death so judgment could pass over them and it would fall upon him. He loved them that much. Jesus was emotional, just like you and I are emotional with our children or our parents or whatever. Jesus had emotion, and it tells you right here that he loved them, his own. That's what he calls us, his own. And supper being ended, so the Passover meal was ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So here's Judas... And it says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus tempts Judas and Judas bites and he takes the temptation. And just like Satan tempts you, and hopefully you say, I ain't taking that temptation. This one right here, Judas took the temptation. He had already talked prior to this. He had already talked to the Pharisees and the high priest, to how he's going to betray, betray Jesus anyways for 30, 30 coins of silver. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going to God. Jesus has all power and authority at this point. It just tells you right here, everything was given into the hand of Jesus by his Father. Jesus had more power he had so much power at this point. Not that he never did before, he, but this right here is saying he's give, at this point, all things are given into his hands by God. So he rises up from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that which he was girded. This is a huge deal. And Peter's going to point that out to him in a second. Because Peter likes to point things out to Jesus. 
For Jesus to do this is so counterculture to everything that they know, his disciples know. It's all about a hierarchy. The higher you are, the, the more you're served. That's the way the synagogue worked. That's the way it is in their society, especially in the Roman society. Okay? And for Jesus to do this, he's saying, I'm taking the lowest form as a bondservant, as a slave. This is a position of a slave to wash feet. So what's the big deal about washing feet anyways, right? Well, you got to think they're open-toed shoes and they're walking around dusty, nasty roads all day long. And I tell you what, I, if you ever had the privilege to go to like Pompeii, which was the city that was covered by Mount Vesuvius um, down in Italy, it was during Jesus, uh, just right after Jesus's time when that happened. And they started uncovering it in the 1900s. They started taking, they, they realized that there was a city under there, all this ash and dirt, and they started uncovering it. And you can see this city. And because of the ash preserved it all, it's just remarkable what you see what's there. And you can see the roads and how everything was designed. And that's a Roman city, a Roman culture, Roman um, structure, just like it probably was down in Jerusalem as well, because it was Roman occupied. And they made nice roads. But in those roads, as you can see, that on the sides of the roads is where the sewage went. And when it would rain, the sewage would overflow and we'd get on the streets where you're walking. And if you're in open-toed shoes, you're wearing sandals, and that stuff turns to dust and the heat and it gets on your feet. Can you imagine, right? Just nasty, stinky feet all the time. And here's Jesus taking off his sport coat, if you will. And he's just in his, um, his undergarment. And he takes a towel and he girds it around his waist as it's his part of his clothing. And he gets a basin of water and he has to kneel down to his disciples. And he just starts washing this nasty part off the, this stuff off the feet, right? This nasty dirt and all this stuff. And he's just blowing their minds. But you got to think about this. They have walked with Jesus for over three years now. They had seen, they've seen Jesus do things that nobody else can do. They've seen him raise dead people. They've seen him cure paralytics, heal them, cleanse lepers. He's so powerful, he says three words to a hurricane in the Sea of Galilee, and it goes completely calm when he says, peace be still, completely calm like glass. And they were so frightened because of this person that was in the boat has so much power. They were looking at Jesus with, with an enormous amount of fear. And he was doing one thing after the next, he could feed 5,000 people plus with a few loaves and a few fish. He could multiply it. So anytime they wanted groceries, he could just make it happen, right? He's that powerful. They know that. They've walked with him already for too long to, not, to know how powerful he is. And now he's bending down to wash their feet. And then look what happens here. And then he comes to Simon Peter. And Peter says to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, 
or if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, I got to be honest with you. I would have probably said the same exact thing Peter said. Why are you washing my feet? I should be washing your feet for all that you have done for us. I should be in that position, and yet you're in this position, and it goes against everything that I was taught. And Jesus is like, if you don't allow this to happen, you can have no part of this right here. You have no part of the kingdom of God because you do not understand it. You have no clue what you're talking about right here, Peter. And I am going to try to educate you with this. And so Peter says to him, well, then, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus says to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Peter was right. He's just like, just cleanse me. Just completely cleanse me, if you will. And Jesus is like, you're already cleansed. So he's pointing at judgment will come, pass over you, Peter. You have, you're with me. You're with me. You, by faith, you believe that I'm the Christ. But here's the thing too. Daily, as people would walk in this culture, even though they're at their bathe and they're clean every time, that their feet would get dirty. And what he is trying to tell them is, is and this is for us as well. Even though you're clean when it comes to the judgment, you're going to get into heaven. Judgment will pass over you and you have eternity with God. But you're going to walk around in an unclean world. Every day of your life, you're going to walk around in an unclean world. And we are to serve one another, to build each other up so we can stay in this world. And some of you, you work in some environments I know that are hard. I remember coming home sometimes from the Air Force after I was saved and, and I started, my eyes kind of opened up to what's good and what's not good and kind of conversations, even though I, the ones I used to be involved in, I was no longer involved in them. And I remember coming home this thinking, man, I just feel filthy. I just need a bath <laughs> after talking to this one person. And I'm sure many people prior to my salvation probably felt the same way after they got done talking to me, you know? But sometimes you're going to be in the world and you're just going to feel absolutely dirty when you come home and you just need to have your feet washed and what Jesus is going to do he's what he's demonstrating is the church this is the church's function to lift one another up to hold one another up to encourage one another to cleanse them if you will like a mini baptism if you will to get back out there and do the work for he knew verse 11 who would betray him therefore he said you are not clean at all. So when he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and sat down again and said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Do you understand what I'm doing? It's more than just washing feet. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus knew that Judas was betraying him at this point, and he still washed his feet. He still washed Judas's feet at this point. What a lesson for us to learn on this one. Sometimes you're going to have to wash the enemy's feet just because that you are demonstrating the life of Jesus. Sometimes that's just what we do. He asks them and he tells them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He wants us to wash feet. He wants us to get dirty. If we say we are Christians, then we follow in the path that Jesus has set for us. And if we are too good to bend down and serve somebody and get dirty in order just to serve them, then we are too good for Christ. We're too good for Christ. But what a wonderful example our king sets for us where he just gets down and he says, this is what I want you to do for one another. I want you to serve one another in a radical way, not just serve to get something out of it. You serve conditionally, but he's talking about unconditional service that you don't get anything from them because you're getting your reward in heaven, that kind of service. Regardless of how they treat you after you serve them or before you serve them, you're going to serve them the way Jesus, Jesus served Judas. You're going to do that, he says. And that right there is the model of kingdom living, which goes so counterculture to the model that we see in this world today. Doesn't it? Everybody raise your hand if you agree with this, right? That's the truth. Yet it's so hard. It's so hard sometimes to do this. Even within the church, it's hard to do this. But I say this. There's no other way to do church. This is it. And if we as pastors on staff do not get this down and we think that we have some sort of honor given to us and that we deserve some sort of honor, it's the worst thing that can happen in a church when the pastors don't get this. And how many people have seen pastors, maybe in their past, and hopefully you don't see it here. Hopefully you don't, but we pray, Father, just make us humble, help us. And if you ever see us lording anything over you, please gently come to us and tell us, because this goes totally what Jesus asked for, asked us to do. But the pastor should model this for everyone. And the church should model this for the world. And if the church doesn't do this, then who's going to do it? Right now, depending on what stage of life you're in, this could look differently, right? But right now, I'm in a stage where I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. And they like to get their way a lot. And they like to question my authority a lot. That's just what a child does. And I tell you, I've never had my cracks in my armor exposed more um, in my life than after I've had children. Matter of fact, before I had children, I was the best parent in the world. I could tell you <laughs> how to raise your children and get your child to be quiet in the restaurant. Right? And now I have children, I understand. Man, you just need some peace. Just, and you just turn it off. I just need to get out and, and enjoy myself. I understand. But they question your authority. 
and they just nag at you all day long, and this, sometimes you just, you just feel like, I can't do anything but come unglued right now. They just question my authority over and over and over. But at the same time, this little passage of scripture right here comes to my mind. Am I gonna wash my children's feet? Because if I don't, who's going to teach them how to serve as Jesus served? Are you doing that for your spouse? Because if you're not, who will? We are asked to serve our spouse in this way. We are asked to serve our kids in this way. If our household can't do it, then how in the world are we gonna do it outside of our household? Amen? And it's hard, but if I keep this section of scripture in the back of my mind and I meditate upon it, when it comes time for trial and I'm being tested where I don't feel like doing this because I just wanna sit and do nothing and everybody wants something from me, I think about this and I get up and say, this is what you've asked me to do. There's a time for relaxing, but there's, there's a time for serving as well. And I think about it at the church and I love Chuck Smith, our, you know, the, our pastor of Calvary Chapel as a whole. And he tells his pastors um, in his book, Calvary Chapel Distinctives, he's like, there should be no pastor that's above picking up a cigarette in the parking lot. There's not one person that's good, it's not too good to do that. Every person, if you see a toilet clogged, you, 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 you try to unclog it. Is it somebody else's job or is it this, not your church as well, right? That's kind of his model. And that's why he kind of told his pastors, you need to act this way because this is the way Jesus acted. He served the people. And as the pastors do it, then the people in the church, they serve and they do it and they get down and they get dirty as well. And next thing you know, you know what happens? The church starts expanding because it looks totally different than what the world can offer. And there's something refreshing about this, just like my Lieutenant Colonel Chisonas back in 2000, kind of laid it out for the squadron. And the next thing you know, we're winning all the awards. We're doing everything with a morale sky high just because he implemented a principle that Jesus asked us to implement. And I just think, God, how do I, how do, I do this in my household first? How do I do this with my children? How do I do this with my spouse? How do I do this with my neighbor, my coworkers? How do I do this with all you guys as well? And at the end of the day, I don't think there's one Christian that can get out of this. All Christians are asked to live this way, regardless of your position. But if you think back to second, or Philippians chapter two, you have five through 11, which is one of the most remarkable sections of scripture that we have. He gives us this beautiful um, description of Jesus that just, you just continually reap from it. It says, let this mind being you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We have to have the mind of Christ to walk as the mind of Christ. Okay, that's what he's saying. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was equal with God. He was king. He was equal with him of power and authority and everything. And he didn't grasp for it. It was given to him, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. So he comes down in the midst of this world. He doesn't come as a king. He comes as a bondservant, as a slave. In the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's our king. 
that our king came to serve. And when we say yes to our king, we will follow you. We accept your sacrifice on our behalf so the Passover can go over us on the day of judgment and we can have eternal life with our heavenly father. We realize how much he loves us. And then we realize, wait a second, our king who had all privileges and rights to be above everything chose to give that up and give his status and give his honor up to wash feet? Radical, absolutely radical. If the church can get this, and I believe we do, I see it here all the time. I see it here all the time, but man, who cannot improve? We, we all can improve upon this. But when the church gets this, this church is so refreshing to the community, it's the salt and the light. But when the church doesn't get this, and it's all about themselves, and it's all about what I can get, then we are the absolute opposite of salt and light. We have no taste, we have no flavor, nothing good. We have no light, we're leading them to nothing, we're leading them to darkness. But when we can grasp this concept, then we, we taste good, if you will. We're a seasoning, and we're light to people. We give them direction. And so as I read this section of Scripture in John 13, I have about five hours of dialogue in my head about what I want to say <laughs> because I'm sitting there trying to figure it out like God how do I do this even better and I'm just so mesmerized by our king that he would do this and he would live this way and as we turn our eyes on Jesus as we see Jesus then we can walk in this manner but if we fail to look at Jesus and model his life, we can't walk in this because it's not in us to do this. You did not come out of the womb ready to do this. You came out of the womb a sinner just like I did. And then Jesus in his kingdom, he comes in and he transforms your life daily. It's a daily walk. It's a daily feeding. So important to be in the scripture daily. So important to pray to Jesus so important to ask him for humility daily, to examine his life. How did he live daily and how do I walk that way? Because when I know I walk in the steps of Jesus, I walk in victory. And so I pray that myself, we all grasp this on staff as pastors. I pray that you all grasp this as saints of Christ in the church and in the community and your work centers and your families and everything. And just remember this. Even though you, you probably won't get this all the days of your life, you won't, find, you won't fully grasp this because only Jesus can. Every single day we can walk closer and his grace is sufficient. His grace, he loves humility, not pride. He loves humility. Just be humble, admit it when we're wrong, and just move forward. And some of you here is like, man, I've been failing at this all week long. I've been failing this for years. Well, today's a new day. Amen. Yeah, we can clap for that. We always celebrate the Lord's Supper on Wednesday nights. And, and if you go to the Luke passage of this account right here, he kind of lays it out. He passes around the cup and he says, this is to represent my blood. This is going to be shed for you. Take this in remembrance of me. He passes the bread around and he pulls it off. He's like, this is going to be my body. It's going to be broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me.
He instituted that during this time, during his Passover. It's not in this account, but it's in another account. And as we do that tonight, um, it is a ritual, and it's a good ritual that we do because rituals should remind us of something good. And it's a ritual we do that reminds us of what he has done for us that we can never repay, and it's an, an acceptance of grace that he has for us that we never earned or deserve, but he gives it to us freely. And as we take the communion, we take the cup that represents his blood and the, and the cracker that represents his body that was broken for us. When I ask you to take of it, think about the cross, think about him dying on the cross. And as we listen to the music, just sing worship unto him and pray. And I wanna ask if there's anybody who doesn't know Jesus, that you come down and say, today's the day I understand I'm a sinner and without his blood, judgment will not pass over me. It won't pass over. It says it in scripture. The only way for God's judgment to pass over us, to look over our sin, is if we're covered by the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. The only way to do that is put your faith in, in Jesus Christ and him alone and turn to his face and worship him. And if you want to talk to somebody, there's going to be pastors on the side down here ask the questions. If you want to come and confess and be safe, please come down. Let me pray for us.